Our winter sermon series is called Kings, and we are going to be studying the lives of the notable kings of Israel and Judah. And the reason we're going to be studying their lives is because the kings of Israel and Judah, they ruled over kingdoms that specifically belonged to God. And so we know that they were in the position of ruling those kingdoms on God's behalf. They had a special responsibility to the creator of the universe for the decisions they made and how they ordered that, those kingdoms. And as you watch their successes and more frequently their failures, we can learn from them the art or ways to and ways not to rule on God's behalf. Now, you may be wondering, why do I need to know how to rule on God's behalf? We live in a democracy. We don't even have kings. And if we did, I would be last in line to be one of them. So why do I need to know this? If you are asking that, then that probably means that you haven't been listening to me preach for very long, because this is something I talk about a lot. If you have been here for a while, you're probably tired of me talking about this. But actually, the last time my brother was here was five years ago this Sunday when I was starting our first series on the kingdom of heaven. And I was telling you exactly what I'm about to tell you, which is that God actually designed human beings. He created them and put them in this world for the specific task of ruling. He didn't make us to... to Um, praise God. He didn't make us to worship or be in relationship, although he wants those things. He wants those things because he loves us. Uh, He made us with the job of ruling over the earth. That's exactly what it says when he creates us. In Genesis 1, he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. The job of human beings is to rule over the world. That's why God made us. That's what was missing when he made humanity, was some creature to create some order in the world that he made. To, uh, five years ago, the way I described it was like giving my son my Lego collection, which I eventually did, and he loves them, and he's fantastic at them. Uh, but it's the idea that here's my Legos, and, and now you can make things with it, and I can make things with you. That's kind of what God made human beings for. And that's not just where we started. It's not like that was the plan and then we messed it up and we're never going back there. At the end of the story of the Bible, the last picture we see of human beings, it says, this is humanity and God on the new earth. And it says, night will be no more. People will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So we were made to rule. We're going to end up ruling. In the Old Testament, God showed the Israelites how to rule by giving them the law of Moses. And when Jesus proclaims that everything's being put right, he says that the kingdom of God is being restored, right? This is language that goes all throughout this. And this also helps us to explain why God focuses on human beings in his process to save the world. Do you know that God isn't saving you just for you? He's saving you for your capacity to rule and what you can do to the world around you as well. In, Gen- in Romans 8, Paul says, creation waits, eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. Notice it says at the beginning that creation waits for God's sons to be revealed. Not God but God's sons. And at the end, it says they will be released from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. 
Because the way creation works properly is when human beings play their proper role of ruling over creation. Like Things won't be right for the animals until the people that God entrusted them to are right. And actually, the person who really keyed in on this is C.S. Lewis. If you were at ladies' movie night on Friday, I didn't even make this connection until after I wrote the sermon and realized they watched Prince Caspian. And there's a quote that I love in Prince Caspian where this badger named Badger, right? I think. I think he's named Badger. I don't know what the other badgers were named, but Truffle Hunter. I'm sorry. No, that's, that's be- uh, never mind. I got totally mixed up. Truffle Hunter. Truffle Hunter the beaver. He has a real name. Come on, honey. He has a name, and it's Truffle Hunter. He says this. Let's get to what Truffle Hunter said, all right? What he said was, We beasts remember, even if dwarves forget, that Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. See, honey, it says Truffle Hunter. I wrote that myself. The point is, <laughs> the point is, he says, Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. Because that's how God made the world. And this world isn't right until the people in it are right. So what this, the whole point of this is to tell you that you may never be an act, a king in the human sense, but God made you to rule. And whatever territory, whatever your kingdom is, whatever responsibility he has delegated to you, he has saved you to set that area of responsibility right. How does God set your home right? By saving the people in it. How does God set your workplace right? By saving the people in it. How does God make sure that your parents are, or your parents, that your pets are better taken care of? By saving you. Actually, parents, like if your parents need taken care of, how does he make sure they're well taken care of? By saving their kids and, and making them into caring children, right? Like that's how God fixes the world is by fixing the people that he's delegated the world to. So that's why it's relevant to each and every one of us to learn how to rule the world well on God's behalf, because that is every one of our jobs, whether you wear a crown or not. So we are going to be looking at the stories of the kings, and we're going to start today with the beginning of the monarchy. Israel didn't start out a monarchy. It started out a nothing. It started, like, politically, it was like, they call it, scholars will call it a tribal confederacy, which is, you know, kind of, basically. But they, God brought them out of Israel, or out of Egypt to Israel, led by Moses, then led by Joshua, and then Joshua dies, and nobody really replaces him. Because the idea is they can all just live in the land, and, you know, somebody makes war on them, they'll blow a horn, and all the farmers will come out and make a militia, and they'll fight off the Philistines, and then they'll go back to farming, and everything will be fine. And they have, like, they have, like, judges, they have, uh, the elders will sit at the city gates and solve issues, and every once in a while, some, there will be an, a, a crisis, and somebody, I'll stand, somebody will stand up who's clearly gifted to deal with the issue and will lead them, and they call that person a judge. But it's all very just, as, as needs arise, they'll deal with it kind of a thing. And the key thing is that the people who are gifted to deal with the situation are always put there by God and enabled by God, and there's clear evidence that's the Holy Spirit that enables them to do that thing. And we call them the judges, right? So that's the period that they're in when the monarchy starts. And we're going to look at how they went from this tribal confederacy into a monarchy. And then next week, we'll talk about the first king. His name is Saul. But we're going to start by reading the story of how they became a monarchy, because it's actually really telling. It gives us a lot of insight into our role as individual, as, as people who each have been given a responsibility before God. So, let's read the story. 
when Samuel grew old, Samuel was the last judge, the last person where people said, hey, God seems to talk to Samuel. Why don't we listen to him? Because what he says tends to work out. And that was his authority. Like God spoke to him and he's tended to be right. So let's listen to the guy. When he grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son, the son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned away to dishonest prophet, took bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, look, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong, so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel calls them back together and says, all right, if you want to have a king, here's how it's going to be. He's going to tax you, and he is going to draft your kids. And they're not just going to have to be soldiers. They're going to have to be waiters. It is, you know, they're going to have to run alongside his chariot. They're going to have to do all the stuff. He's just going to take stuff because he's the king, and that's what kings do. That's what all the kings do. They have the right to just take stuff, and you're not going to like it. And eventually, you're going to hate the king as much as you currently hate the people you want the king to save you from. It's not going to be fun. Samuel told all the words to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these are the rights, and he, he oh, I thought I added that part out. Anyway, so he tells them all, yeah, you're going to take all your stuff, going to take your fields, going to take your flocks, the, um, and... Um, there we go. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. Samuel listened to all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to the people, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. And then he does. And that, that'll be next week. We'll talk about the king that he appoints. He gives them exactly the kind of king they asked for. Why? Because God delegated them authority, and so he respects the way they use it. I mean, he, he allows them to use it the way they've chosen to. He doesn't yeah, anyway. So, what's going on here? Are the Israelites rebelling against God? It kind of seems like they come up with this idea out of the blue. Like, they innovate and they say, hey, let's have a king just because all the other people have it, but they were never supposed to have a king. And that's not quite what's happening. What's actually happening is that they invoked the law of Moses to ask for a king. There is a king clause in the law of Moses, and they're invoking it. The book of Deuteronomy tells us in Deuteronomy 17 the circumstances under which they can ask for a king. It says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, this is Moses before they ever got into the land. Moses is speaking to them on God's behalf. He says, when you get there, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. So they have the ability under the law of Moses to ask for a king. So the question is, what's the problem because when, the way God reacts is he considered it a rejection of himself. But he's the one who told them they could do it in the first place. 
The elders probably pulled out the law and said, man, you know, Samuel's sons are jerks. Let's find out what we can do about it. Hey, right here it says we can have a king. Like the kingdoms around us. It even uses that word, that phrasing. So, well, let's ask for that. Why does God consider it a rejection of himself? Well, in order to understand that, you have to understand how the law of Moses worked and how, then, and how they were mess, like changing that, working against the law of Moses in the reason they asked for a king. The king's job, it says, was to, when they appointed the king, it says he was to be seated on his royal throne. He's to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him, and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord as God, to observe all the words of this instruction, and to do these statutes. That's a different job than other kings had. Other kings didn't get a law from God that they were supposed to enforce. Other kings got, like, they were supposed to enforce the traditions that had been handed down, but other than that, they kind of had a free hand to do what they wanted. Now, the, the kings of Israel had to enforce a law that was already written. And <clears throat> the thing is that in normal circumstances, every Israelite was actually responsible for upholding God's rule. Before they appoint a king, every Israelite has that job. It's actually part of the key confession of the Jewish people that they, say, they have said every day since it was given to Moses, and they continue to say it every day today. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit on your, in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Every, that, that sounds a lot like what the king is supposed to do, right? Because every single Israelite bore responsibility for upholding the rule of God in Israel. That's why they were able to operate without a king first. Because they didn't need the king. When, the, when they appoint a king, the king is actually just going to do for them what they were all supposed to be doing individually. So under the law of Moses, every single Israelite is responsible for upholding the rule of God. And the way, the, the, the things that happen to the kingdom of Israel in their relationship with God depends on how well they do that. Right? When you read the history of Israel, when they do that really well, things go well for them. And when they do it really poorly, God doesn't let things go well for them. Because the way God takes, like what happens to Israel is a signal to the world of whether they have, whether they have God's support in what they're doing or not. So as long as things are going well and they're saying we are the people of Yahweh, that implies that God approves of what they're doing because he's making things go well. And if they disobey God, then things have to go poorly so people can see they're not doing, they're not fulfilling the plan, right? So God protected them when they obeyed and he protected them when they repented. And in the book of Judges, they go through these cycles where they're obeying God and then they stop obeying him. So God stops protecting them and these people come in and persecute them and attack them. And then they repent. And when they repent, God sends a judge to deliver them. But the whole point is that their political success, their foreign policy success is a barometer of how obedient they are to God. That's what you're supposed to be seeing, right? 
Okay, now, in order to really understand any story in the Bible, you have to read the whole story. And the story of Israel choosing a king, it's actually uh, 1 Samuel 8 through 12. And sometimes the Bible, Bible stories will reveal de- details later in the story that you would have expected to get earlier. It's kind of a plot twist. So we're going to talk about, this is all tied up, like 9 and 10 and 11 talk about Saul. We're going to talk about Saul next week. But let's jump to chapter 12. They call Saul. Saul leads them in battle. They win. Everybody thinks, man, this king thing was a great idea. Let's throw a party and we'll really, because some people weren't sure about the whole king thing. Now that he's defeated our enemies, we'll have a party. Samuel will throw the party and he'll put some oil on the guy's head and we'll call it official, right? It'll be awesome. Samuel shows up and he goes, guys, you don't remember what actually happened. You have the wrong perspective on all this. So let me remind you what has actually happened. And here's how he describes it. He says, Their ancestors forgot the Lord their God, so he handed them over to Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, to the Philistines and the kings of Moab. These enemies fought against them, right? So they disobey God. God allows them to be persecuted and to suffer, right? Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, for we have abandoned the Lord and worshipped the Baals and the Ashereths. Now rescue us from the power of our enemies, and we will serve you. So the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel. He rescued you from the power of the enemies around you, and you lived securely. So that's where they repent. The people themselves repent, and God restores them, right? And they've done this over and over and over and over again until... When you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, no, we must have a king to reign over us, even though the Lord your God is your king. And here's that little detail that you didn't know in the first part, that this wasn't just some some constitutional convention that they thought they'd do for the sake of efficiency. They had a king bearing down on them with an army, and they had a choice. How are we going to get out of this? Well, we have the time-honored tradition of all of us repenting and following God, but you know, that's a lot of work. And I actually make a lot more money by not following God, right? It's actually more convenient to me to worship a lot of gods. It's easier that way. So what if instead of repenting, we will choose a king and the king will repent for us? I won't have to make those decisions anymore. I can just follow the guy instead of following God. That's what they're doing. The Israelites asked for a king so they wouldn't have to repent anymore. They're trying to get out of their responsibility for this whole Israel goes the way their relationship with God goes. Like, let someone else take care of our relationship with God. Can we outsource this whole faithful to God business, and I can focus on just doing whatever makes me materially comfortable or brings me money or makes me happy, and someone else can bother about God? That's what they're doing. They're outsourcing their relationship with God. Not because it's not important, otherwise they would just forget about it. They're outsourcing it because they know it has consequences, but they don't want to deal with them. And the question is, does that work? Because it kind of seems to, right? God says yes and gives them a king. And God then, from this point in the story on, God works, when he works with Israel, he works through the king. And the question is, did God accept the deal? And that's what they're celebrating. They think, hey, God saved us through Saul. I didn't have to repent, but Saul said a really good prayer and then went into battle and we won. So, hey, it works out. God took the deal. And Samuel says, yeah, he didn't take that deal. He gave you a king, but he didn't take the deal. 
He says, here's the king you've chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king the Lord placed over you. If you fear the Lord, worship and obey him, and if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. Yeah, you thought all I cared about now was the king? No, I still care about the people. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. You are not off the hook. God gave them a king, but he did not let them give up their responsibility for upholding his rule. And there will be, there will be times when all of Israel get, when they have bad people and a good king, or when they have, when they have a bad king and got myself mixed up. The problem that they have is that there will be t- now if the king is bad and the people are good, the people still get punished. Because the kingdom goes bad when you have a bad king. But also when when the king is when the king is bad and the people are good, they don't get credit for it. And when the king is bad, I'm getting myself mixed up. How am I what am I trying to say? The point is all they've done is they've added their liability because if they do things wrong, they're still going to get punished. If they do things right and the king does things wrong, they're also going to get punished. They haven't helped themselves get out of this responsibility because you can't, because God cares about what every single person who follows him does because his design is to change the world through every single person that he has called. God is a collector of people, but he's not the kind that leaves his collection in the box. He takes every one of us out and uses us. So Samuel goes on, he says, even though you committed this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn away to follow the worthless things that can't profit or rescue you. They are worthless. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he is determined to make you his own people. Above all, fear the Lord God. Fear the Lord and worship him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things he has done for you. However, if you continue to do what is evil, both you and your king will be swept away. It still matters, and it will always matter, no matter what you do and what arrangements you make, it will matter what you do. And that's how they got the monarchy. It's not an auspicious start, is it? It'll have some highs, and it'll have a lot more lows, and we're going to examine all those, because now instead of looking at the, what it's convenient for us is we can look at the story of one person and learn from it instead of looking at the story of an entire population. So it's simpler for us to learn from them. But one of the things that we're talking about in my How to Read the Bible class is that when we read the Bible, we have to remember that we are reading God talking to someone else. So we have to take the step of translating it into our modern day. So we are not in Israel. We are Christians in the church in America, 2,500 years later, almost 3,000 years later, how does this apply to us? Well, what I want to do now is I want to touch base as we close. I want to touch base with a passage in the New Testament that connects with this principle among Christians. And it's going to sound a little weird to go into, when I read this passage, it may not be immediately clear, um, but let me explain it to you. Here's Paul talking to the church in Corinth about a problem that they've been having. He says, if any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? 
Or don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, do you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one wise person among you who is able to arbitrate between fellow believers? Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is, to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. He's going after them for going to court. He's saying, you Christians should not be suing each other in a pagan court. Why? Because you're going to judge angels. Didn't you know that? That we're going to judge angels? How would they possibly know that? Because they know what the Old Testament has been teaching the Jews since it was written, that human beings were designed to rule, and that when God saves us, he is saving us so that we can rule properly. So if God made the world, and God made the world to work a certain way, and God is saving his people so that it can work a certain way, then, should, then who should be the best at ordering the world in the proper way? Who's responsible for ordering the world in the proper way? Christians are. Who should be able to resolve conflicts themselves? Christians should. Who should be the best equipped to forgive each other, to reconcile, to make good decisions together, to look past uh, petty rivalries and, and the, the things that cause problems in our society? Who should be best at that? We should. Because that is our job. Because God is saving the world by saving the people in it. Our communities should be better off because we are in them. So if two Christians who are being molded in the image of Jesus get into a fight and they cannot, dis they cannot sort it among themselves and they can't sort it among other people who are trying to look like Jesus and they have to go to somebody who's never even heard of Jesus and has no idea what Jesus wants for the world and that's the guy that sorts it out, what does that say about the people who are supposed to be trying to follow Jesus? They're not trying very hard right? That's what he's saying. It's to your shame that you should have to go to people who've never heard of Jesus to be told to love each other. And they're not even going to tell you to love each other. They're just going to tell you to stop beating each other up or doing whatever it is that you're doing to each other that got you into the court case. Because the whole point that's revealed in this is that Christians, just like Israelites, are called by God to rule the world on his behalf. So in the kingdom of heaven, every citizen is responsible for upholding the rule of Jesus. That means that you have a responsibility. It also means you have a purpose. Because you may be sitting there thinking, well, I have nothing. I don't even have an income. I have a pension or social security, or I, I'm a stay-at-home parent, or I don't have, I just think uh, this is all I have. What you have is what God has given you, and God saved you to transform what you have, whatever it is. So you have a job, you have a purpose, you have a kingdom, a dukedom, it's, it's a, a part of God's kingdom, right? You're not the king, but God is. And you are responsible for ruling that, that territory according to God's design. And the thing is, we think that we want to be in charge, but what this story reminds us is that often we don't. When we have responsibility, we often shy away from it and we want to give it away. So our temptation is to avoid the authority we have and to give it to others, especially when the responsibility is to do things that might go against what I personally want. What we really want to do is we want to outsource the self-control. 
We want to outsource the decision to give up the short-term good for the long-term good. Let the king care about that, and then I can just focus on satisfying my immediate needs. And we may think about the, the Israelites doing that with the king, and we can't do anything like that, except that churches do that all the time. Churches bring in pastors and say, hey, the new pastor, he's going to grow the church for us. He's going to come in and evangelize our community for us. He's going to come in and make everything different, and they're going to fix it, and we can just sit back. I, I consider, in a way, I mean, I have no plans to go anywhere, but if I did, Turner would be a bad place for me to learn because my elders give me terrible experience. Because so many other elders, wow, let me backtrack that. What I mean is so many elder boards that I hear from my peers, there are elders who will say, no, we hired you to do that. That's why we have a pastor, so we don't have to worry about that. We're not going to fill in for you preaching. We're not going to call on people in the hospital. No, that's what we hired the pastor to do. The pastor pastors and the rest of us can just observe. Our elders don't do that, and that's why they're not training me well for serving in a church that had elders like that, because we have a church that, that is, since before I got here, has a broader sense of that, of that ministry. But really, in a way, what I tell people is I don't have a job. The church pays me so that I can do what we're all called to do full-time. But the things that I do, and, and there is an arrangement of labor, that's what, what having a pastor means, but there is nothing that I do that the rest of you aren't all called to do in some way. You're all called to be teaching someone. You're all called to be ministering to someone. You're all called to be doing something. Sometimes churches will hire someone and give that all away and say, no, the pastor's going to do it all. I, am, I used to tell the youth group when I was a youth pastor, I am not the missionary to the high schools. High schoolers aren't going to listen to someone else's youth pastor. You're the missionaries to the high school. One of my high schoolers right here. You remember me saying that? Yeah. I'm not the missionary to your neighborhood. You're the missionary to your neighborhood. I'm the missionary to my neighborhood, and I'm, I'm working on it. We also do this, unfortunately, with political leaders. If we can get the laws right, then we won't have to worry about actually changing our communities the old-fashioned way by spreading the gospel. We can just have it by the force of law. If we can get the White House or we can get the Supreme Court or if we can get the legislatures, or, and we, we, will, we will try and control, control culture through the government, which never works because the government just changes hands the next time and it all gets undone, right? It never lasts more than two or four years. But what's actually changing our culture is the grassroots stuff that happens, either through what gets put on television or by the interactions that you have in your neighborhoods. That's the stuff that changes our world, and that's where the real responsibility lies. And I have people, you know, I, what I will tell people is, I know we, get, we have to put a lot of thought into how we vote, but I want you to remember that what you vote, you voting is probably the least powerful thing you do to shape the direction of our country. It is the least powerful thing you do. The way you treat the people you interact with every day, that's where the power is. And that means that's where the responsibility is. And it's true, it is a fact, that the kingdom of heaven flourishes when and where citizen, uh, citizens, meaning citizens of the kingdom, take responsibility for their own roles in the kingdom. You can see this demographically. You can see this objectively through studies of numbers. That tradition, uh, Denominations, let me give you an example. The Methodist church, I've probably talked about this before. There is, in the early 1800s, there was the Methodist explosion 
the Methodist miracle, they call it, where they, they sent out circuit riders, guys who would ride hard. They were always on their horses ministering to different churches and planting new churches, and they all died young because they were putting so much work in. But the, it exploded, and Methodism went from being tiny to being the biggest denomination in America when they were doing all this work. And, and they, were, they were poorly educated, but they were diligent, and they loved Jesus, and they put everything into it. And they, the church exploded, and it was led by all kinds of farmers and 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 just people that love Jesus, and that's why. And then, in the 1860s, something changed. They went respectable. They became a mainline tradition, and they started sending their pastors to the most expensive schools and trying to be the socially respectable church, and um, they've been declining ever since. Because when churches ally themselves with the culture, without fail, every denomination, when they do that, they start to shrink. Because it turns out if all you're giving is what the culture has, if all you're giving is culture wars, people can do that from their couch at home. They don't get up early on Sunday morning for stuff they can get the rest of the week. You go to church to get something different, to experience God. And on the other side, the church's Christianity has actually been growing in America all that time because those Christians who have been focusing on following Jesus and doing what the early Methodists did, They've been growing the church at a greater rate than the others have been shrinking. Christianity is still growing in America. You wouldn't know that from some of the, some of the news stories that they tell, but it is growing because of Christians who sit in the pews or the chairs or the couches or the beanbags, and then they go out and they take their responsibility seriously in the world. And it is continuing to transform America, it is continuing to transform our world, and it is continuing to transform Turner, and we can be a part of that. And we are a part of that. And so as we close, what I want you to consider is taking responsibility for your role in building the kingdom of God in Turner. Or Salem, or, or Almsville. I know we don't only live in Turner. But it's the name on the building. Each one of us has a role to play. Each one of us has a responsibility. And by the power of God working in you, this world will be changed by what he does through you, by what he does through each of us. So my first question that I'd like you to consider as we prepare to sing our last song is, have you given yourself to that kingdom? Have you committed your life to Jesus? Because that's the first step, to be a part of that and to have the power. Because we don't just, it's not just random people doing nice things changes the world. It is the coordinated work of the Holy Spirit through God's people that changes the world. If you want to be a part of that, today is the day to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you've given your life to Jesus, but you've given away your responsibility and you haven't been taking it seriously yourself. Maybe you need to rededicate yourself to serving Jesus personally. Today is the best day for you to give your heart back to Jesus. If you want to give your life to Jesus, you can come up during the last song. If you want to rededicate your life to Jesus, you can come up during the last song, or you can talk to me after the service. This is not something you're called to do individually. We do this as a body. And so maybe what God's putting on your heart is to join one of our classes or Sunday school groups. You can uh, sign up on the green piece of paper, in the, the green card in the seat back in front of you. Maybe God is calling you to put skin in the game and serve in certain ways. Maybe you're called to serve in our new food bank, or maybe you're called to serve in other ways, and you can fill out the blue card and let us know that you're interested in that. Maybe the, mo the decision that you're meant to make now is to commit to being part of this congregation, placing your membership here, or finding, uh, starting a conversation about membership. I'd love for you to tell me that you'd like to talk about membership or fill out that red card. The point is, 
God has something for you to do. And it might involve filling out a card, and it might involve something in your life that I have no idea about. And I don't want you to miss this chance to act on it. So ask yourself, what is the step that God's putting in front of you? What is your responsibility in his kingdom? Identify it and then decide, today, I'm going to take that step. So, I'll invite our praise team to come up, and as you consider that, I'll invite you to stand as we sing our final song.